Hey there, Film Buds. Welcome back to the Film Buds podcast. I'm your host, Paul. And I'm Lauren. And uh, this week is uh, episode 207, and we are continuing on with our uh, Oscar History Week. Um, Before we get into our reviews uh, of, of today's films, which are from the 40s and 50s, uh, dear, what have you thought sort of, of of the journey from our first film, a silent film in 1927 uh, to now? Um, I don't know. I guess I feel like movies had to, to meet a little bit more earlier on because there were so few of them because you know this is a new medium the things that really get to be put as the best of the best probably uh, have very little to go against and therefore you know the things that are remembered from those time periods have to be you know this is the time period you know as a as an exclamation whereas I feel like we're now getting into the the plethora, you know, every generation we get more and more used to this as a medium. And therefore, I think that it, it starts to get a little bit more bogged down, a little harder for something to really shine. And, you know, I feel like from from the first two generations to now, we've really gotten, you know, a little bit more cozy in the idea of making a film. I get where you mean. Um, so for those who don't know, we've been we've been doing historic best picture winners um, this month. This is only our second episode, so our first episode was the 20s and the 30s. Uh, and now we're in the 40s and the 50s. It's interesting because, um, you know, I've seen a few more, I think I've seen a few more silent films than you, probably not terribly many more but probably like a handful more. I mean, I'm sure you studied film, so I'm sure you've seen um, more silent films than I have. So what's so interesting is film goes on this very interesting, you know, sort of trajectory where um, film for a long time was like a working man's medium in metropolitan areas. You know, blue-collar people went to the movies because you paid, like, you know, a nickel or a quarter or what have you. And you got to go in and watch a movie, whereas theater sort of remained the highbrow, you know, mark, the the golden standard of, of where you went for awe. I feel like you could probably still say that today, especially considering how much more expensive ticket prices are for theater mm-hmm. than they are for movies, even to this day. Um but you know i I'd, I'd say that it's a little iffy on whether or not you're really getting the awe that you were getting back in the day nowadays um and that's also why like early film poached a lot of playwrights mm-hmm. you know from new york out to la and things like that was to kind of bring some of that class and sophistication and that veneer to the whole thing no yeah i think that with this new generation we've definitely stepped further away from that and and so because the again like i said the medium isn't new anymore you know we've now been making films for you know at, at the at the latter part, part of this you know 30 years yeah 
So like we we've got this. We're we've we've figured it out. We've we've cracked our knuckles and really sunk on into this thing. Well, and um, you know, from the advent from our first film in mm-hmm. nineteen twenty seven, silent film, which did uh, feature when it was released theatrically some of the first wide shots. And then when it was re-released in 29, had certain sound effects and music that was played on a record. Then into the talkies in in uh, the 30s. In the 40s-ish is when um, the first TV is made. But then by the time that you hit the 50s is when TVs are really being produced. Because even though TV was was made in the 40s, the main entertainment form for people at home was also still radio because a lot of the of the production means at the time in the US didn't really make TVs because everything for a lot of the 40s was going to the war effort. Mm. And so it wasn't until the 50s that you really start to then have TV making people go, well, I'm not going to go out. See, I, I was thinking I had being me completely forget about the war on a regular basis um i was thinking it was like you know it's it's like it's like an xbox or a playstation is today it's 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 only if you're willing to to front the money for it and and pay the oh yeah and it was expensive oh yeah, yeah because of the the rarity of the item i was just assuming that you know the 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 working class just literally couldn't afford the ticket for it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, um, early TVs also were definitely a status symbol because also you needed to have the space for an early TV. The early TVs were probably about the size of our dresser next door for a TV screen that was probably about ten inches. Wow. It was an enormous beast of a thing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and some rich motherfucker was like, oh, Look yes. Look at this. Come, yeah. come see it. <laughs> come see my honking piece of crap. <laughs> mm-hmm. Come and squint at this grainy image. So uh, Luxury. <laughs> um but no, that's that's kind of, and you can also start to see as we move forward, you know, from the 50s onward, this is also when they start to include some of the epics, you know, and that's when they also start to experiment with other things that can only be done in movies to try and draw attention away from TV, which they saw as direct competition to them. Well, yeah, because also TV is free, mm-hmm. you know, even back then. I buy could... the TV, I put the antenna on it, and I can stay home. Yeah, I can I I have my few channels that I get to choose from and that's it. I get to watch the things that come on TV, you know. It's not until later that we get into like color TV, but like just having a TV in general was like even even up until like the 60s was like a huge thing. Yeah, and you know, once we start to hit the 50s, we're also now hitting I Love Lucy, which was such a big deal that literally a department store changed its hours on Monday nights because of how empty the store was. Um, that, a, that was a smart business move. There's a presidential inauguration that had fewer viewers than Lucy's episode. I don't doubt that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 
How many times has you, have you personally gone, oh gosh, the president is speaking on this channel that I want to well, watch and just turn the channel? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was his inauguration, you know, that his swearing care. in, which especially back in the day was much more of an ordeal. No, I'm sure, but that's because they had less options. Once they had something more interesting, you see the evidence shows they said, I don't care. Um, but so to enlighten our listeners, now that they've heard us prattle about the, the 40s and 50s for a while. Um, <laughs> prattle indeed. So last week we did Wings and You Can't Take It With You, um, which also was the beginning of the Frank Capra and um, James Stewart relationship. Today we're doing actually, by accident, uh, a double feature of the films of Elia Kazan. And so our first film is from... Uh, 1947 called gentleman's agreement uh and then our second film is from 1954 called on the waterfront and on the waterfront was one of three films that were uh an elia kazan and marlon brando partnership oh okay um had you seen either of these or heard of these before we decided to to do these nope not a lick okay <laughs> not even a little bit i had heard of them and i had definitely seen you know the infamous clip from on the waterfront you know growing up i would watch things like afi's 101 you know greatest movies and stuff like that and yeah, I watch the Oscars regularly and, and all sorts of film retrospectives on TV. And so, like, I saw that I could have been a contender clip, like, all of the time growing up. That's the up. only thing I feel like people remembered from this movie. They were like, it it won an Oscar. <laughs> um, but, again, these are movies that I had never seen. Um, and actually, really, the overall, like, filmography of, of Elia Kazan is not one that I had seen terribly many of. Um, it's, again, one of those things where I think most of the films he made, I saw, like, more clips from them, you know? Uh, like Streetcar Named Desire. You know, I saw Brando in the rain. Stella! You know, again, that kind of Again, another one of those scenes where, you, like, you know the scene because, like, they forced it down your throat in school or wherever, mm -hmm. and, and that's it. The actual whole picture gets lost to the to the dust covered shelves but that one scene <laughs> um no absolutely and so this was this was interesting i i always love old film because i don't think it's as alien as everyone likes to make it seem you know and i think that a lot of times people can be like ah older films are so much better but i think that you can still find like old bad movies i think the thing is older bad movies didn't really get picked up and moved through time there are some out there that i think aren't as good as some of the the truly good ones that got picked up and moved through but it's also a little bit of cultural taste you know someone grew up watching it's a wonderful life and therefore and decided that they loved It's a Wonderful Life and wanted to keep It's a Wonderful Life alive kind of a thing. You know, I thought you were going to go down a different rabbit hole with that thought of, um, you know, it, be, it being a different time period and therefore yada yada. I was, I was thinking um, in a more approachable sense of like, 
characters and like their their problems you know everybody thinks of like old movies being so stuffy and being like oh it's old so therefore i can never connect with these characters and their problems how is that problem relatable to me now whereas like i love watching old films because if anything it it for me it connects us even more as as humans you know getting to to feel the same kind of struggles, you know, maybe not in the literal exact way, but like everybody, you know, has, has job struggles, has love struggles, has time struggles, you know, there's, there's war, there's, there's, there's impoverished, you know, mint and, and all of these other things that you can definitely relate to. Sure. Sure. They don't have, you know, cell phones. Or, or computers in a lot of these things, but they have their own version of these, of these things. And, and I think that at the end of the day, I find it, it more humanizing to realize that we all have, we're just kind of in a, in a giant loop, you know, we've may have modernized the, the machinery that we're using or, or how we live our lives. But at the end of the day, we're we're not doing anything different than what they were doing, you know, in the, in the 50s or even in the 1900s or further back. It's just a matter of, of you know, it's, it's still that human. Um, it's the human condition itself. Yes, yes. You know, watching an old movie, whether it be a silent movie, a movie from the 30s, a movie from the 70s, It's ultimately for a, in a certain context, as alien to you now as the world of The Witcher or the world of Game of Thrones mm-hmm. or the world of Star Trek. And so going to your point, if the, if the human condition of the narrative lands, then any alien aspect should sort of automatically be overridden. Yeah, if that makes sense. No, yeah, you know, I may have to auto-correct my mind to this time period, but for the most part, especially like with with last week's episode, um, with us talking about um, not not um, oh gosh, now I can't remember the the name of it. Um, you can't take it with you. You can't take it with you. Yes, with you know this this idea of you know the rich not understanding that their money isn't isn't all it's cracked up to be you know that's such a relatable thing even nowadays you know realizing that there 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 are people there are real people around us you know not just and money isn't all it's cracked up to money be. has a cost yeah you know these are these are life lessons that are universal and transcend not only you know cultural boundaries but also time itself no, absolutely. Um, so speaking on social issues, this is a great segue. So Elia Kazan, you know, we're doing two Elia Kazan movies. And he has said that he was, you know, in a general sense, interested in telling social stories. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted, you know, his films to always have some sort of um, socio-political, relevant-to-people kind of undertone. Okay, that makes sense. Um, for a little bit of background on on Elia before we get into these films, uh, Elia Kazan was born in formerly the Ottoman Empire, now Turkey, 
Uh, he was born in it when it was the Ottoman Empire. He was born in uh, 1909, I believe. Was he alive yes. for the transition? Yeah. Okay, I mean, I don't, I don't know when, when it transitioned. <laughs> no, not at all. That's a history lesson for a different time. Okay, cool. Um, but he only was there from 1909 until 1913. Um, he was the child of Greek parents, and then they immigrated to America. Uh, he went to Williams College and the Yale School of Drama. Oh. Um, and he graduated um, and then started acting professionally. Um, and by 1932, he had formed the group theater. Um, or he, he had joined the group theater and then, excuse me, by 1932, he and some people went and founded... Um, or got together, and by 1947, they founded the Actor Studio. The? The Actor, Actor Studio. Studio? Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Um, and so it was then at the Actor's Studio that he and Robert Lewis and Cheryl Crawford worked with their dear um, friend and director, Lee Strasberg, mm-hmm. and they brought method acting to the New York acting scene through the Actor Studio. Fascinating. Um, so he was an actor, he was a director, he was a producer, he was a screenwriter, he had been on the stage before, um, he even acted briefly in some films, um, and then he started to go and move into movie making. Um, his first film was actually a documentary short, then he did A Tree Grows in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. in 1945, um, and then his, his arguably, you know, big one, um, after that was Gentleman's Agreement. Um, then he went on, directed more films. He started working with, uh, Marlon Brando with A Streetcar Named Desire. And they made, uh, another movie called Viva Zapata. And then they made On the Waterfront. He's also the one that brought us James Dean in East of Eden. Mm. That was James Dean's first movie. And um, he worked, you know, very regularly, very healthfully as a director until 76. Um, Tying into, however, he he is known by many as an incredible director. Mm -hmm. But he is also not without controversy. Tying back into, if you watched our I Love Lucy episode, or our our Being the Ricardos episode from a few weeks ago, um, that movie deals with HUAC and the Red Scare and some of the Hollywood blacklisting going on. Last week we talked about the social commentary plays and that sort of thing. Well, growing up, he spent a few years, Elia did, in the Communist Party as an active member of the American Communist Party. Uh, also amongst those were some of his other theatrical friends and actors and playwrights, including a playwright who came out to L.A. as well, named Clifford Odets. And in 1952, Elia Kazan ended up going before HUAC for his affiliation. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who maybe don't know, 
essentially HUAC, and I talk about it again in the Being the Ricardos episode, HUAC was a, an organization that started in the, the 30s, 40s, but really grew to prominence under a senator named Joseph McCarthy, who was um, a morally repugnant man that uh, tried to inflict his own um, puritanical will on others, and he started to weaponize his position as a senator against everyone. Um, communists, um, people from the LGBTQ plus community, uh, people of color, immigrants, artists, journalists, he really, and anyone that questioned him, you came under scrutiny. And it ended up resulting in a a lot of people ended up getting blacklisted, meaning that they were unable to work again. And if you weren't blacklisted, you still ended up going under scrutiny and having to go and prove that you bled the, the red, white, and blue, and that you loved America and that you were not a communist. Um, the easiest way to do that was to name names. To go up and be like, I was a communist, but I'm not a communist anymore, and here are some some communists that you can talk to. And Elia Kazan ended up going and naming names, which led to a few people being blacklisted, one of which was the social uh, playwright, the social conscience playwright Clifford Odets. And he ended up working a little bit again, but he was never able to work again in Hollywood. He was physically accosted by people when he went back to New York. Um, and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of people were very upset and personally hurt. And some people were also, uh, career-wise hurt by his going forward and naming names. And a lot of people were, were named. It wasn't just HUAC. There was also this thing called The Red Channels, which was this book that listed, like, over a hundred people that were either communist or allegedly communist, but some of them were affiliated with that list because they were a part of civil rights groups. Um, some of the famous people who were in the Red Channels include uh, the actor Uta Hagen, who was also a, a teacher, Orson Welles. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, let me try and find him. Okay, I can't find him right now. But the point is, it was a it's a huge list of people. It is. It's a it's a thick list. I'm looking at it right now. <laughs> and he he did name some names and it ruffled quite a few feathers and caused people some consternation and some pain. Um he was still able to work professionally. He still went on to win Oscars. And then in the 90s, he ended up getting like a, a Lifetime Achievement Recognition Award at the Oscars, which led to about 200, 250 protesters outside of that year's Academy Awards with about 50 counter-protesters. Uh, it was such an ordeal that Kazan did not walk the red carpet, also because he was very old and feeble at the time. He was in his late 80s. Um, and when he went up to get his award, there were several people of high profile at the time who did not stand and clap 
uh, including Ed Harris, Nick Nolte, uh, and several others. Good. So, um, he, he lived quite this complicated life. Um, apparently he lost several friends due to it, like the playwright Arthur Miller. One of the only people that stuck with him during this time supposedly was Tennessee Williams, um, who he said was a very good friend during a very hard time. And it's so weird to hear um, names that I've, like, studied of, like, straight-up dead people. Yeah. You know, being like, oh, my good pal. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's a little bit of an, an overview of, of Elia Kazan. Um, I don't know what to make of, of what he did. I'm not overly fond of it, but also... I've never been in that kind of hot seat. I mean, he had to make a tough choice, basically lose your entire career or give some names. But it's, 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 it was a witch hunt. It's, it's always a witch hunt. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've done it a thousand times and we'll continue to do it. We're doing it right now, you know. Witch hunts are, are all around. Name some names and maybe you'll look, be looked on a little bit more fondly for mm-hmm. it. And so, like, he made a tough choice, and at the end of the day, I think that, I think that the legacy of, of Elia is still gonna stand beside the, the fact that, like... He caused damage as well. Yeah. It's not a clean legacy. No, because a clean legacy would have been, like, I'm gonna take my shame, and I'm gonna wear it, and I'm not gonna name anybody. The thing is, is he got to work, whereas others didn't. Yeah. They didn't get that same opportunity. Well, and he ended up winning like two Academy Awards afterwards. So even though I understand wanting to give him a Lifetime Achievement Award, also at the same time, he had been recognized and won multiple times. And so I could also see people... One of his awards was 54, two years after he named names. So... I also understand why people were like, don't give him a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's already got his gold on the shelf. No. Kind ex- of a thing. Exactly. You know, he he gets to to walk away scot-free, whereas, like, others others didn't get that opportunity. And if they did, they they chose the, the choice of not going further down the rabbit hole, you know. Because- well, and, like, Dalton Trumbo was still able to work, but several of the movies that he wrote then had to go and be given to someone else and a different name slapped on them and some of those people won awards for his work or were nominated for awards for his work while he didn't get recognized until over a decade later. Yeah, and like so many people have had to, you know, at, at that point in time had to go through so many different hoops in order to to be seen favorably again you know, if they got that opportunity. And so I understand people's frustration with him and, and the choices that he's made because at the end of the day, it it damaged more careers than it saved. No, absolutely. Um, if you want a movie of what it's kind of like to be in the hot seat, and I, I mentioned this on the, on the Being the Ricardos episode as well, one, there is a movie called Trumbo uh, starring Brian Cranston where he plays Dalton Trumbo. Uh, and there is also a Robert De Niro movie where he plays a fictional writer called Guilty by Suspicion uh, that is also worth title. watching. It's a great title. It's a good movie. 
Um, perfect title. I, I mean, I, I can't comment on the movie. I've obviously never seen it. <laughs> um, but now with all of that behind us, I guess now is as good a time as any to jump into our first movie, Gentleman's Agreement. And we have a clip, so take a listen. Do it to him before he does it to you. What do you want? Your gun. We got the fattest beers and the fattest harbor in the world. Everything moves in and out, we take our cut. I better get you home. There's too many guys around here with only one thing in their mind. Am I going to see you again? So that was Gentleman's Agreement from 1947. As I mentioned, it is directed by Elia Kazan. It is written by Moss Hart, and Elia Kazan did a revision. Moss Hart wrote the screenplay of last week's film, uh, You Can't Take It With You. He was one of the two screenwriters. Copy. Okay. And it is based on a novel of the same title by Laura Z. Hobson. The premise is a reporter pretends to be Jewish in order to cover a story on anti-Semitism and personally discovers the true depths of bigotry and hatred. And it stars uh, Gregory Peck, Celeste Holm, John Garfield, Anne Revere, Jane Wyatt, uh, and Dean Stockwell. And, um, dear, why don't, why don't you go ahead and, and take us off? They've listened to me yammer for a while. <laughs> okay, um, Gentleman's Agreement. I think that the name is so misleading. I, I understand kind of, you know, what it, what it's winking at, you know, for the times, because it's, it's, it's the forties. Um, but this, you know, if I was just looking at a poster for this, I would have literally no idea what I was walking into. And maybe that's the point because this movie is like right in the middle of world war two. Just after world war two, it's 47. So it's two years later. Oh, okay. Just after world war two. Um, but yeah, no, I, um, how do I, how do I feel about this movie? I feel like this movie was really soft when it came to talking about, um, anti-Semitism. And, and again, maybe that's, maybe that's because of the times, but it really felt like a, you know, you could get the blue collar version of this, or <laughs> you can get the rich people's version of of anti-Semitism, you know, the I didn't know that my neighbor hated the Jews version of of this. And I don't know, I guess I felt like this movie wasted a lot of time where it could have really been something fantastic, something really like opinionated and like, no, this is wrong. And like it did do that, but it also never showed anything really at all. It was the the worst the worst thing that we get is is his child coming home crying after the kids bully him about being jewish and i think that i think that that's all well and good but like this movie really just like 
I don't know, for me, it just didn't have a lot of, a lot of backbone for it to be a movie about why this is wrong. No, I think that's all really fair. First of all, I would like to also just say that the the plot description sounds like you're about to watch someone put on a bad prosthetic nose and a yarmulke and, like, it could easily be horribly offensive. Like, when you read, I think, the plot synopsis and think about also the fact that it's a movie from the 40s, Oh, 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 yeah, It no. sounds like it opens up the doorway to, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, Andy Rooney terrible Asian impersonation from Breakfast at Tiffany's kind of approach, but for a Jewish person. Thankfully, let me start out by saying it doesn't do that. He literally just goes, well, there's nothing about me that says that I'm not Jewish because Jewish people just look like people. So I'm just going to go around and start telling people that I'm Jewish, casually in conversation, and see what happens. Quote, unquote, casually. (laughs) (laughs) He'll just, like, randomly, like, say it. He'll be like, well, you know, I'm Jewish, so. Uh, And then just, like, (laughs) wait to see the room react. Um, (laughs) Literally. So this was Gregory Peck's eighth film. Um, Gregory Peck is a phenomenal actor. Let me start out by saying I think that there are tremendous performances throughout the movie for me is a little bit slow the the first time that it really got interesting was when he discovers that his secretary is jewish in this incredible interaction that they have regarding um the fact that she changed her name to get the job that she has now and i think that it's from that moment onward i was a little bit more like okay okay go on And some of his interactions with his secretary where she has this kind of um, internalized, you know, sort of prejudice against Jewish people is fascinating. And they're some of my favorite scenes in the movie. And his, uh, his scenes with his friend, who is Jewish, are some of my favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, the, the John Garfield character, Dave Goldman. And I really think that, like, this movie has moments scenes that absolutely sing but i think to your point it it deals primarily with this like upper crust high society anti-semitism and you know the whole gentleman's agreement line is this like throwaway line in the third act of the movie and where it's in the middle of a of a like monologue that someone is throwing out that they say oh you know it's a gentleman's agreement And so I think that to your point, no, it does end up feeling a little bit reserved in how it chooses to handle the subject, especially since we are only two years removed from World War II. And like, you know, you you mentioned earlier that Elia liked to to have a lot of commentary on issues and he's commenting all day and night on it, but, like, at the end of the day, he's also very moderate about the entire thing. You know, it's wrong, but... And I feel like that's, like, the thesis statement for for this movie is, like, I think that our lead is, like, nope, this is wrong. You know, 
any version of this is wrong and I'm totally here for that. And then he goes about wasting a lot of the movie and a lot of time on this love interest with this woman who's like, no, I get that it's wrong, but not in my neighborhood. No, I think that to your point, and I was just thinking about it before you mentioned it, I think it is a real odd choice that I almost feel, and maybe I'm misreading it, I feel like they try to make Jane and her plight sympathetic. The entire time, and it's so frustrating. It it feels like you're supposed to feel for her being this woman who doesn't want to confront these things, who's uncomfortable, and like you're supposed to be with Gregory Peck's Philip on this crusade where he's supposed to feel ultimately morally right and she's on a certain level his main antagonist and again maybe this is me misreading things but for me it feels like narratively she's meant to be an antagonist figure but it also feels like the movie wants to like pat her on the back and be like it's okay you just have to change and and maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, but ultimately for me, I don't think that her growth felt natural enough that by the end point when he goes back to her after she's learned her lesson, that that feels earned. No, I think that, honestly, I think that he should have um, chosen chosen the other woman at the end because she was awesome and fantastic and wonderful and all of the good things to describe a person as um she was just she was just honestly like the best female character in the entire woman and the entire woman in the entire movie and um the the woman that he wastes a lot of his time with his love interest of the movie is constantly being like Oh, well, but, you know, it's just easier to not be. It's her answer for, like, the entire argument, you know. Oh, why? Why on earth would you want to pretend to be Jewish? Why would you want to, why would you want to do that? It's so much harder to be Jewish, but I also will refuse openly to, to admit that their treatment is wrong. I'm, I'll just accept that I'm not Jewish and that be my gift from God and to move on with my life thusly. And it's just, it drives me up a wall because like at the end of the day, if you are not willing to put an active, put, put your fucking, your piece on the, on the board and be an active player in the game of life then you are not alive, then you are not here, and you need to sit in the corner and shut the fuck up and get out of the way and let people who are actively doing things do them. Whether it's hate or it's progress, just get out of the way because honestly, at the end of the day, you're like a car on the street that's not moving. What is your purpose here? And it's just it just drives me up a wall. And I, I agree with you. I think that this entire movie is constantly trying to make her, like, sympathetic. 
And I think that that is because of the fact that of the times that this movie came out in, the fact that it is just after the war. And I'm sure a lot of people were on the fence about this issue and were like, oh gosh, you know, thank goodness I am Christian and had a lot of these same viewpoints and were very moderate about the whole thing and unwilling to make any active change in the in the system because why rock the boat? But for the purposes of this film, it's it's an entire waste of time. No, and, and I also just agree. I, I, I just disagree with the fact that she is actively against him the whole time and she gets to have her happy ending. If she learned her lesson but also understood that it was too late and that, you know, she as a person was never going to be a fighter and that Philip was always going to be a fighter regardless of that cause and they were just never going to really drift that way. She now has learned her lesson, but she also understands that she can't be as as forward charging as he is. I think that that would have gelled and worked better for me. But the fact that we get this nice little end, tie a bow on it, ending. No, and honestly, like, for me as a viewer, I think that the tie the bow end would be for him to go to the woman was like, I think that if, you know, I think that the, the new mother of your child, you know, as a as a widower, I think that the per- partner that you want next after that loss is somebody who can who you can work with who is a partner for you and not just somebody who 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 basically cleans up for you you know somebody that you can talk to who has the same kind of opinions as you do and i and it's just it just throws me absolutely that you know this woman who has perfectly been so on his side about this your Jewish lifestyle choice that he made for in in for the purposes of you know unmasking you know uh, uh anti-semitism in in every v- form of it. it it just seems bonkers to me that he was like but the woman who might on Tuesdays hate the Jews is the woman that I think I'm still gonna gonna give her another chance like Ugh, why? <laughs> no, and and I think it also doesn't help for me. This is, I guess, more of a of a performance note or a casting note. I don't think it really helps for me either that Jane Wyatt, who plays Jane, is fine, whereas Celeste Holm, who plays Anne, the the optional other woman, has chemistry oh she's perfect not even just with him but with the camera with the audience she is a great character oh she's she's she is an interesting character where jane is just thank goodness she's pretty or (laughs) else like like throw her away you know kind of character like she was just there to be to be pretty well and it also doesn't make a lot of sense that she's the one who potentially put forth this story idea for him to go and explore anti-Semitism in America when she also harbors these feelings. And maybe that's supposed to be a little bit about some of the cognitive dissonance of the average person. Yeah, but she understands that it's wrong, but also she's not going to put the effort... Yeah, she's not going to put the effort into changing it to make it better. Absolutely. And so I think that they never... 
they never sell me on on why I should feel sympathetic for her. And and Anne is just so compelling of a character. She's funny, she's spunky, she's modern for the times. Like she is just a great character. Um and very fashionable. Uh she's absolutely fantastic. Like it, it's it was a wrong choice at the end of the day for a movie that's about why you shouldn't be anti-Semitic for for the in for the end line of it to be, but give them another chance. Yeah. Um overall, and I think the other thing that I find odd is that and maybe it's because it's a, a book adaptation and maybe the book that it's adapting from wasn't after World War II or was even maybe potentially before World War II. But I think the fact that we never address in any kind of way World War II is also another really odd choice that they make, especially since his best friend is a Jewish veteran. And so if it's after World War II, there's really only one option of what war he served in. And so I think that it's so odd that we also just never address anti-Semitism in America, especially in the context of the freshness of World War II. No, yes, you're, I mean, you're honestly, you're completely right. This movie... What war? The entire time. It's... Dave is just a veteran. He's just been stationed somewhere, and he's finally back now. We're we're in a we're in a parallel adjacent universe where there is anti-Semitism, but but Hitler who? <laughs> we've never heard of him here. Um, no, I thought that that was insanely odd that they were just like never one time, not even a blip. Of all of this movie, all, all, almost two hours of this movie, and they were like, we don't have the time to talk about the war. Not yeah. even, not even a second. And honestly, again, I just, I think that this movie wasted a lot of time on, like, I think that it's, it's completely of the times thing to do to be like, but it has to be about a love interest. You know, and I think that that was the crux of this movie for me. It really held it back was the fact that they were like, but we have to have to throw some love in this movie because what is your wife going to take out of this movie? Like it was just a waste of time. It could have just been about this man writing this article. And honestly, like for the most part, he didn't write a damn thing until the very end. And I found that very, very peculiar to be this movie all about like this journalist and not one time did we see him with like a pen and paper or anything. And then out of nowhere, they were like, he has this article written and it's spectacular. And I was like, but when did he do that? We watched his entire life for the past like six weeks or whatever of him pretending to be Jewish and he was just keeping it all in his brain, you say? Because he even has a secretary, the secretary that you mentioned earlier. Not one time, not one time does he have her write a thing. Uh, so would you like to uh, 
hear some of would you like to hear some of the some of the acting nominees um before we give our scores or or after um the acting nominees or some of the some of the academy nominees that were up against this movie this was the best picture winner would you like to hear some of our nominees now or after we give it a score. I mean, I'm sure that it probably will not um, change my opinion of it. Because also, like, I don't know what other movies came out in 1947. Uh, so it won Best Picture. It also won Best Director for Elia Kazan. Uh, for Best Picture, it was nominated against The Bishop's Wife, Crossfire, Great Expectations, which is a, an adaptation of a novel, and Miracle on 34th Street. Ha! I'm sorry. Um, I think that Miracle on 34th Street got gypped. Um, so, and like I said, it won Best Director. Alongside him in the, in the nominees were Henry Coster, Edward Dimitrik, uh, Greg Cooker, and David Lean. Uh, our best actor nominee is Gregory... Do you mean George? Oh, yes. Excuse me, George. Uh, amongst our best actor nominees were, uh, Ronald Coleman, who won, uh, John Garfield, Gregory Peck for Gentleman's Agreement, William Powell, and Michael Redgrave. Um, our best actress included Loretta Young, who was our winner, Joan Crawford, Dorothy McGuire for Gentleman's Agreement, uh, Susan Hayward, and Rosalind Russell. Um, interestingly enough, I won't go too much further than that, uh, Best Screenplay went to Miracle on 34th Street uh, as an adaptation, but Best Original Screenplay went to The Bachelor and Bobby Soxer, and The Bobby Soxer. Uh, which I've never heard of before in my life. I mean, it really just rolls off the tongue, honestly. Uh, what's interesting is this is also back at a point in time where you had color and black and white film at the same time. And so you have best art direction and set decoration black and white and best art decoration set decoration color. And you also have best cinematography black and white and best cinematography color. Well, I mean, I guess we're we're looking at this in like you know the future times when what's black and white where? Yeah. Um, but like if that's just your everyday, of course they would have a category for it because I'm sure somebody was like, well, we can't judge them the same. Yeah, you know, you do a set design and a costume design different in black and white than you do in color. Yeah. Because it, it's going to read different, yada mm -hmm. yada, et cetera, et cetera. But I, I thought that was a Film fun little science, a fun little tidbit. Uh, so, dear, if you had to, if you had to rate it uh, out of five, what would you give? Gentleman's Agreement. I'm going to give it a three, right, right in the middle of the pack. Like I think that this movie could have been better, should have been better, but chose to just hit as moderately as its opinion about anti-Semitism. I think that that's pretty fair. Um, I'll give it a three as well. Strong performances, interesting ideas, some really standout scenes. 
Um, shot kind of plainly, and also sometimes I really noticed how how strangely lacking in, in music it was. But, I, you know, again, that's not necessarily a ding against it, but just something that I, I wanted to throw out as a final note. But yeah, it didn't reach as far as it could have. Um, and it's it's good, but not great. And honestly, I think that that's really um, telling, considering the movie that of the list of of movies presented for this year, the one that is truly remembered of the times is not Gentleman's Agreement, but Miracle on Thirty Fourth. So. I think that that's pretty fitting on, like, how this movie stood up to the test of time. That, like, even though, you know, almost a hundred years later, we're not, we don't remember it. It's not a part of the, uh, the, the American psyche. Which is a shame also because theoretically its messaging has some relevancy, but could be more relevant and could dig deeper deeper because anti-semitism is still a problem today it's almost like this movie should have taken a bigger bite back in the in the 40s and then we wouldn't have actually been still having this problem instead of people getting a pat on the back for being maybe a little bit racist no i see where you're at um it it needed to go further for sure um it just it pulls back too much you know i think that i think that it should have gone as far as you can't take it with you did with its with its opinions about the rich yeah honestly um moving on i suppose we can now jump only a few years later we have been jumping by like decades now we're only going by about 7 years uh to on the waterfront and we have a clip so take a listen. When Laura Z. Hobson's great story, Gentleman's Agreement, first appeared serially in Cosmopolitan magazine, its 20 million readers were startled at its staring. As a book, Gentleman's Agreement still leads all bestseller lists month after month. No story of the last decade has hit the literary world with such terrific impact. The author has deftly treated a taboo topic to give it excitement, exhilaration, and entertainment. And now, as a motion picture, Gentleman's Agreement is accorded the highest honor a picture can be given. Here we see its producer, Daryl F. Zanuck, receiving the Academy Award for the Best Picture of the Year. That was On the Waterfront from 1954. The premise is an ex-prize fighter turned Jersey longshoreman struggles to stand up to his corrupt union bosses, including his older brother, as he starts to connect with the grieving sister of one of the syndicate's victims. It is directed, as I mentioned before, by Elia Kazan. Uh, screenplay by Bud Schulberg. Starring Marlon Brando, Lee J. Cobb, Carl Malden, Rod Steger, and Eva Marie Saint. Um... I guess since you since you did the the last one I'll do this one. So for a little bit of historical background, don't worry, I promise it's actually short. Um once upon a time unions ended up being infiltrated and corrupted by the mob. And that was largely due to when they say the syndicate 
they mean the crime syndicate, the only one that really existed in, in Jersey and New York at the time, the mob. Uh, the mafia, the Italian mafia, and others took cues from it as well, but did it to a lesser degree, saw that by controlling the unions, controlling the workers, they could, one, control policy and politics, and they could also control, uh, you know how they were shipping and receiving their product and and how they got it out amongst the community and they could control who worked and who didn't and so they could use it for power and power gains and it ended up becoming somewhat of a corrupt organization and that's partially it's very complicated but that's a little part of why unions for some people have this kind of bad historical reputation is because once upon a time they were used in a corrupt fashion. Um, like I said, I'd seen the clip of this movie uh, a lot of time where Marlon Brando talks about being on a one-way ticket to Palookaville. And um, beyond that, you know, it was... I didn't really know much about it. I knew that Carl Malden was in it. Um, but that was really it. Uh, this movie, I think, is... It's faster on the take of, of delivering sort of what's, what it's about, what's going to happen, who our characters are, than Gentleman's Agreement was. Um, and on a certain level, it's a little bit more gritty and, and sunken into what it's trying to talk about. You know, Gentleman's Agreement was talking about anti-Semitism, but it kept it, you know, upper class and, and higher. You know, we never really saw this kind of what the common man felt around the Jewish people or about anti-Semitism or anything like that. It was a bunch of rich people, you know? Uh, whereas with this, we are directly dealing with working class, blue-collar people, you know, directly affected by this corruption of the powerful onto them, um, and how it can sometimes end violently, and the, the way that it can just sort of, in a common way, tear apart a family, and tear apart a community. And I think that that's a real, a real strength of the movie. I think ultimately, though, it it has the same sort of problem as Gentleman's Agreement of not really sticking the landing on what it wants to be about and what message it, it and how strongly it conveys that message at the end. And I also think it does a really bad job of linking some of our most important relationships that should be driving the story forward together, to where even though a scene is acted well, the emotionality of the moment isn't present. Mm. Dear, what do you think? Gosh, I wish I could mentally remember this movie. <laughs> And we just, we just literally watched it yesterday, like 24 hours ago. And I can tell you bits and pieces of this movie, but this movie is so just, it's, it's like one of those ransom notes in movies where it's like a bunch of cutout letters 
from different magazines and things thrown onto a piece of paper to make a make a message. That's your mental picture of the movie? Yes, it's a mess. You got like a little cut out of Brando's head. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it's and and the the blonde chick that that wasn't related to anybody but this movie kept trying to tell me that she was from the neighborhood and I was like no she's not. Um this movie was at the end of the day was was about the mob and and that's like what what the movie was you know they they try to make it you know they they try to glitz it up by being like oh this that and the other the 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 syndicate but at the end of the day it was it was the the literal hey oh forget about it kind of movie of of um you know the common man over here getting pushed around and i and i just kind of lost mental interest in this movie almost almost immediately um because if any movie has a hard time selling me it's gonna be a mob movie because i just have no i just have no cultural connection to it just zero percent of me wants to watch a group of men yell about how how unfortunate their lives are but also they're in charge and i don't know i guess uh, for me marlon brando is one of those names that is a name in my head there's no face connected to it whatsoever it's one of those people that people talk about you know oh marlon brando fancy fancy name but no connective tissue whatsoever and finally getting a a face with the name i have to wonder what is it that other people got stuck with you know what i mean like what is what is his legacy in their minds and you know i don't i don't know if for me the name of legend lived up to this performance no i mean that's that's quite the that's that's quite the the mouthful um <laughs> i'm so sorry no i think i see i see completely where you're at right like if if we were to just go and and look at like this performance um you know who who are you who are these characters and you know like and i haven't seen all of a streetcar named desire but like both his character and on the waterfront and streetcar named desire are kind of idiot brute new england scumbags on a certain level you know what i mean um because like one of them is is out here like philandering on his wife and and this guy is this former prize fighter who took a fall for his brother but i think that also goes back to the fact that this character isn't given enough substantial things to make him empathetic to the audience He's performing the character with a depth that the 
that the script simply is not providing. Yes. You want to like his character. Yes. But his character isn't written in such a way that you should like him. Other than the fact that you should. That he's our lead. And I feel like that about, like, almost every person that's presented in this movie. is like, in theory, I'm supposed to feel X about this person. But instead, I'm getting Y. And it just... And I think on a certain level, the movie is hampered by its its runtime. Father Barry is another character that we should really want to like, want to care about, and I do like Father Barry probably best out of everyone. Yes. But I still would have liked to have seen more. Um, And I think the fact that this movie is only an hour 48 ends up actually being a hindrance because, again, some of these emotional beats we never get connected. The Brando speech is his big speech to his brother who was the one that told him to take the fall in the fight that ruined his his boxing career, who just pulled a gun on him. That's a lot. And so the fact that the movie is so short and that we never really see him and his brother Charlie interact in the context of them being essentially not just brothers, but but boss and underling inside of this corrupt system that at the same time, you know, as much as it is corrupt and eats away at their soul, is also the thing that is keeping them safe, is keeping them clothed and fed. You know, we never really get how this dynamic plays out between them, what their dynamic really has been. And so I think, and and then we also never really earn, again, but you beyond the chemistry of the two actors, we never earn the romantic relationship oh. between him and uh, and Edie. You know, we're, we're told that we should like them, and I think as actors they have chemistry, but... It never, why, why is this woman who is educated, who is trying to be a school teacher, see anything good in him in any way, you know? And so I think that it, it never, it never sells me on so many of the key emotional through lines. I think the social commentary is, is here for sure but i don't think that it gives me enough of the emotional through lines to to land it at the end i think that um i guess my opinion of ellie elia dear 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 elia kazan um from this endeavor is he likes to waste a lot of unnecessary time just on whatever and it's usually an unnecessary love interest that is extremely unnecessary in in the most literal sense um and then just like on random jibber jabber from characters that these conversations aren't really meant to go anywhere or do anything and the plot is is three streets over but we're we're over here and we're doing this and we've got time for this. We've got a lot of time for this. And then we get to the plot again and we're fucking five, ten pages ahead. And you're like, I don't know what I missed, but it was clearly more important. Like the rush of the courtroom drama. Yes. Yes. And I just, just what are we doing in this? 
And I think that that's why I eventually just, like, mentally checked out of this movie. Because, like, at the end of the day, it just... It just had a lot of nice, pretty pictures. It was like going to a museum. But instead of it being like... It was like, but we, we spent most of our time, instead of looking at the art, on the journey in between the art. And it just... It just didn't stick for me. And that, I think, is why, honestly, at the end of the day, the only thing that lives from this movie is that one scene from Marlon Brando. It's literally the, the best part that I can't remember. And I think that that says a lot about this movie for me. And, like, I think that the stereotype that old movies are boring is because old movies like to waste a lot of time. And I think that this is, for me, an old movie that was boring. No, I think that's totally fair. And, again, I I just, I have nothing to connect with with a mob movie. And, like, I really, I really wanted to feel for these, like, workers and their plight. But we didn't get to watch any of that. Instead, we got to to watch a whole lot of this, this woman who doesn't at all fit into, in the neighborhood whatsoever, 0%, try and pretend to me that she was born and raised in this neighborhood and is trying to uncover the mystery of who murdered her brother in a mob-infested neighborhood whom, again, she doesn't understand because this small woman, probably smaller than I am, to be honest, and with way less street smarts, is like, but I'm gonna figure out who murdered my brother, and everyone knows it's the mob, and I think I'll be fine on my journey of figuring out said plot point. And that's where we put a lot of our time, instead of actually going to the pier on the waterfront and doing any of that. No, I think that that's all completely fair. Um, so, On the Waterfront was nominated in, uh, or it came out in 54. It's a part of the 27th Academy Awards, hosted by Bob Hope. Mm. Uh, alongside it, it won Best Picture. Alongside of it are The Cane Mutiny, The Country Girl, Seven Bridges for Seven Brothers, and Three Coins in the Fountain. Uh, Elia Kazan won Best Director for this as well, mm-hmm. beating out George Seaton, William A. Wellman from Wings, the director of Wings. Uh, uh, Billy, better movie. Billy Wilder for the original Sabrina. Mm-hmm. And Alfred Hitchcock for Rear Window. Oh. Uh, our best actor went to Marlon Brando for this film. I mean, I, I understand I understand that entirely. He was nominated against Humphrey Bogart. Oh, Humphrey Bogart. Bing Crosby. Wow. James Mason. And Dan O'Hearily, who was the bad guy of Season of the Witch. The old man toy maker in Halloween 3 that was doing the entire sacrifice at Silver Shamrock. No. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Mm, that was a good year. Yeah. Uh, 
our best actress included Grace Kelly. Grace Kelly. Uh, who won Dorothy Dandridge, Judy Garland, Audrey, Hepfer- Audrey Hepburn for Sabrina, and Jane Wyman. Um, so Judy Garland is here for uh, A Star is Born from 1954. This is the second A Star is Born. So this is the first remake Remake of A Star is Born. The first one came out in 1937, directed by William Wellman. Oh my gosh. So we're 17 years later and we're at our first remake of A Star is Born. Well, just wait, guys. Future talking. It, it, It then starts Gaga. Uh, Best Supporting Actor included Edmund O'Brien, Lee J. Cobb for On the Waterfront, Carl Malden for On the Waterfront, Rob Steger for On the Waterfront, and Tom Tully. Uh, Best Supporting Actress went to Eva Marie Saint. She was nominated against Nina Folk. Falk? Katie Gerardo, Jan Sterling, and Claire Trevor. Um... Going back to interesting little tidbits, there was Once Upon a Time, Best Live Action Short Subject, One Reel, and Best Live Action Subject, Two Reel. So one short film that only lasted the length of one reel, and one short film that was two reels long. And and um, as, as somebody born in the 20th century, how long is a reel? Um... It depends, but usually they're like, I'm going to say around like 15 or so minutes, maybe a little bit longer than that. Um, Because like a a big movie like On the Waterfront would have probably been like four to five reels. Okay. Fascinating cool because i was like we're we're getting into more than one now but they're still calling it short yeah so like it still probably is under an hour okay okay um so i had a thought while you were reading all of these titles out and again i i always love to 11 minutes of sound film and about 15 minutes of silent film okay okay copy um, I really enjoy the fact that, like, of the movies mentioned for best, mm-hmm. that, um, the one that, that won, it's not the one that, again, I remember. What's, what's the one that you remember? Seven, um, Seven, seven Bridges for, for Seven, seven brothers. brothers. Interesting. Yeah, that's, that's the title that really, really stuck out for me of, like, oh, I've heard of that kind of, you know, light bulb go off in the brain moment. Um, It is not on the waterfront, which, dear listeners, um, I I legitimately thought was going to be a war movie. (laughs) No, we talked about that. Also, another little fun fact, we've got best music for a dramatic or comedy picture and best scoring of a musical. Hey, look at look at this. Look at this how they 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 separated musical and comedy in the future. The time that we live in now said, "Ah, just put them together." Uh also, the 
winner for Best Documentary Feature was The Vanishing Prairie, produced by one Mr. Walt Disney. Wow, that's a really young picture of Walt Disney. It's, a, it's such a young picture of Walt Disney that it's at that time where he almost looks like Peter Sellers. Yeah, no, honestly, I, I, I was like, maybe that's Walt Disney, and you said his name, and I was like, it is Walt Disney, but wow. Um, so, dear, if you had to give On the Waterfront a score out of five, what would you give On the Waterfront? Uh, this movie is fine, I guess. Um, I give it, I'll give it a two. Because okay. I'm, because I'm feeling generous and I don't know why. I'm going to give it a three. Okay. For me, I think I have enough positives and negatives for it, for it to kind of be like really no, not much better of a viewing experience than than gentlemen's agreement was i think that um for me no i i totally get that i think that personally after a long day of of being at work and being very mentally fried that this movie just came and it went and that's how my brain felt about it you know it literally was a in one ear and out the other kind of experience for me and the only things that stuck were the fact that Marlon Brando was in it and um yeah no that's fair um a real quick connection uh correction before we go on back when we were talking gentlemen's agreement i mentioned jane wyatt and jane as his love interest i was mistaken i i made a little whoopsie i couldn't remember her name if i'm being completely frank uh, his girlfriend was Kathy, played by Dorothy McGuire. So I just wanted to put that little correction out there. Uh, um, honestly, you know, I'm not blaming you for for this whoopsie because I couldn't remember her name either. <laughs> um, no, and and you know, it 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 it's kind of an interchangeable name on a certain level. You know, it's not. Jane or Kathy, like, I don't feel like either of them are particularly, like, stick-in-your-brain names kind of a thing. No, I, I remember her face, but also, like, looking at the faces. Of look- Jane Wyatt, she looked like... Yeah, I mean, looking at those pictures, I really couldn't have told you which of those women, you know... It makes more sense that it was it, it was the one that you you said because her her photo was was higher up on the list, but, like, honestly, uh... <laughs> Uh, moving on, um, I, w- I was going to give y'all a little, a little history lesson on, um, on Oscar campaigns, but I think I'm actually going to hold off on that until next week, since I ended up doing the whole Elia Kazan history lesson at the start. Um, but I do want to go ahead and talk about, uh, they came out this week, we're doing Oscar history month. They came out uh, Tuesday, I believe. The nominations for the 94th Academy Awards. Oh, oh, gosh. I thought you were going to go down a completely different rabbit hole and do the Razzies instead. And Those came out Monday, and I was going to do those next. Oh, sorry, sorry. Spoiled it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so... The Academy Awards, there was a lot of speculation going into them this this year of, of who was going to get nominated for what. 
the the awards leading up to the academies have been kind of all over the place no award show has really made it a, a clear single horse winner um you know sometimes you can tell by what gets nominated what's gonna sweep and i wouldn't say that this is one of those years it's a little bit more chaotic um so nominated for best picture uh are belfast coda don't look up drive my car dune king richard licorice pizza nightmare alley the power of the dog and west side story <laughs> for best director we have kenneth branagh for belfast Ryosuke Hamaguchi for Drive My Car, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog, and Steven Spielberg for West Side Story. Um, I will say this. Nominations... I learned this today before I go too much further. The nominations are done by um, Academy Blocks of People. So, like, the best director was... Before everyone in the Academy voted on who would win, it was only decided by the director's block of the Academy. So, like, these nominees right here are brought to us by the directors. Okay, um... And then everyone from here votes at large. Okay, okay, I guess I, I guess I feel better about knowing that um, after knowing that the people who vote for these things, some of them are idiots. Uh, one standout of it, in my opinion, someone asked Kirsten Dunst if she needed to catch up on any of them, and she was like, no, I'm an Academy member, I've seen them all. Uh, um, see, I feel like you should, you should be required to do your homework and, I don't know, watch the films in question before voting, but that's just me. Um, for Best Actor, we have Javier Bardem for Being the Ricardos, Benedict Cumberbatch, The Power of the Dog, Andrew Garfield, Tick, Tick, Boom, Will Smith, King Richard, Boo. and Denzel Washington, The Tragedy of Macbeth. For Best Actress, we have Jessica Chastain for The Eyes of Tammy Faye, Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter, Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers, Nicole Kidman for Being the Ricardos, and Kristen Stewart for Spencer. Best Supporting Actor, Siren Hines, Belfast, Troy Kotzer, Coda, Jesse Plemons, The Power of the Dog, the one that surprised the shit out of me, J.K. Simmons, for being the Ricardos. They said that we needed to put every person that was in being the Ricardos in the in a category. Well, actually, one thing that has been brought up is the fact that the woman that plays Edith is not nominated. Because how dare she not be a famous person? Um, and Cody Smith-McPhee for The Power of the Dog. Uh, for supporting actress, Jessie Buckley, The Lost Daughter. Ariana DeBose, West Side Story, Judy Dench, Belfast, Kirsten Dunst, The Power of the Dog, and Ingenue Ellis, King Richard. Wait, this person's name is literally Ingenue? I'm assuming that that is the pronunciation. I mean, I wasn't questioning your pronunciation, I was questioning the parents. 
Um, for best original screenplay, we have Belfast, Don't Look Up, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, and The Worst Person in the World. For best adapted screenplay, we have Coda, Drive My Car, Dune, The Lost Daughter, and The Power of the Dog. Uh, and then I won't go too much further, but I will give you all the nominees for Best Animated Feature Film. Uh, Encanto, Flea, Luca, The Mitchells vs. The Machines, Woo! and Raya and the Last Dragon. Yeah. Um, overall, I think they're alright. Um, Academy Awards, and we'll talk about this next week have more at play than just the merit of the films. You know, it's not just movies come out, people see them, people vote on them, just sort of purely of, of good intention of, and of, of good heart. Um, there is a process into how you get nominated, and we'll talk about it, like I said, next week. But if you ever have seen, like, a four-year consideration billboard... Or a full page in Hollywood Reporter that says, for your consideration, you're looking at a marketing campaign that has been cobbled together to make sure that people are aware of that movie, particularly people who vote in the Academy Awards. It's a popularity contest. Um, and so there are definitely some movies that I would have liked to have seen nominated I understand why they didn't, you know, for things like Best Picture, but, like, The Green Knight, for me, is one that should have been nominated for Makeup. Um, the Suicide Squad is one, for me, that should have been nominated for visual effects and probably costume design. Um, there are a few surprises for me in terms of the acting categories. Um, J.K. Simmons is a big one. Honestly, he's probably my biggest one. And I love J.K. Simmons, but of all the parts that I've ever seen J.K. Simmons play, this is like the coziest one for him. This was this was easy. Well, that's why he was the best at it. <laughs> it's because he didn't have to do anything to do it. No, I get where you're at. Um, on top of that, we also, on Monday had the Razzie Awards come out. Now, if you're unaware, the Razzies are kind of a snarky, um, not well thought of by the industry, a lot of people consider them mean-spirited, group of awards that give out awards for the, for the worst films of the year and the worst performances of the year. No, no, no. I think that people saying that they are mean-spirited are are neglecting the fact that they are entirely correct. <laughs> um well, they do have one this year that's dreadfully wrong, but we'll get to that in a second. Um so for worst picture of the year, the nominees are Diana the Musical from Netflix, uh Infinite on Paramount Plus, Karen Space Jam, A New Legacy, <laughs> and The Woman in the Window. For Worst Director, we have Christopher Ashley for Diana the Musical, Stephen Chbosky for Dear Evan Hansen, Coke Daniels for Karen. I'm not sure why they have that in, in parentheses, or uh, quotations, but I'm not going to ask questions. Rennie Harlan for The Misfits, and Joe Wright for The Woman in the Window. For worse actor, Scott Eastwood, Roe Hartramph, 
from Diana the Musical. Uh, LeBron James. Mark Wahlberg for Infinite. And Ben Platt for Dear Evan Hansen. From Tony to Razzie. Well, when you literally look like somebody put a physical, like a digital effect on you, I, 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 I. Uh, worst actress, Amy Adams, The Woman in the Window, Gina DeWall, Diana the Musical, uh, Megan Fox, Midnight in the Switchgrass, Taryn Manning, Karen, and Ruby Rose, Vanquish. Worst Supporting Actor. And here's where we have the wrong one. Mm. Uh, Nick Cannon, The Misfits, fine. Mel Gibson, Dangerous, sure. Gareth Keegan, Diana the Musical, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) Uh, Jared Leto, House of Gucci, fine. Where we got it wrong was Ben Affleck, The Last Duel. Oh my gosh, (laughs) no. Ben Affleck in The Last Duel is iconic i think that they're mistaking his performance for a joke and and it's not it's perfect um worst supporting actress amy adams dear evan hansen she's in both categories she is she is uh sophie cookson infinite aaron davy diana the musical judy k diana the musical and Taryn Manning, also in both categories. Every last one of them. <laughs> um, random aside, going back to Gareth Keegan from Diana the Musical. He was in the musical as James Hewitt, the muscle-bound horse trainer. That's his, that's his character name. <laughs> <laughs> what is this, a romance novel? <laughs> I don't know if this person hates Diana the Musical enough, but I think they might hate this movie with a passion. Well, one one <laughs> thing that the that the Razzies always do also is worst screen combo. Uh, um, so like last year, the worst screen combo was like uh, one of the nominees for worst screen combo was like Ru- Rudy Giuliani and his hand down his pants. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, was like one for Borat. Yes, yes, Borat, subsequent um, movie film. For worst screen combo this year, we have LeBron James and any Warner cartoon or Time Warner product he dribbles on. Ugh. We have Jared Leto and either his 17-pound latex face, his geeky clothes, or his ridiculous accent for the House <laughs> of Gucci. Uh, we've got Ben Platt and any other character who acts like Ben Platt singing 24-7 is normal for Dear Evan Hansen. I think that that's the funniest one because at the end of the day, it's a musical. So that's kind of what what the rules are. We've got Tom and Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry. I'm so sorry. I think you broke me with that one. <laughs> and we have any klutzy cast member and any lamely lyricized or choreographed musical number from Diana the Musical. <laughs> I don't know if you know, but this person hates Diana the Musical. <laughs> uh, and then Oh gosh, the musical I never needed to watch. Every once in a while, they like to give out a little special award or a special category or something like that. And this year's, I think, is, is particularly funny. The nominees are um, American Siege, Apex, 
Cosmic Sin, Dreadlock, or excuse me, Deadlock, Fortress, Midnight in the Switchgrass, Out of Death, and Survive the Game. Those are all of the nominees. Would you like to know the category? Sure. Worst performance by Bruce Willis in a 2021 movie. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I didn't even know that Bruce Willis was in a movie, let alone like 10 of them. All straight to to streaming or DVD releases. Oh no. Every last one of them. And all of these, all of these uh, studios were like, what if we didn't? tell anyone that these movies existed so they decided to go out of their way and um and dedicate a whole a whole category to dear bruce oh how delightful Mm -hmm. he should feel he should feel lucky i hope he shows up to take it in person (laughs) he's not going to some people have some people have actually gone and like accepted their razzie in person if i'm not mistaken um halle berry accepted her Razzie in person good. for Catwoman. Good. Well, at the end of the day... Some people I, take it in good spirit. I think that, um, especially since you said for Cat, for Catwoman, which is the, the worst uh, comic book movie adaptation that's ever existed in the history of, of the world, um, no, I think she knew. No, yeah. But I don't think that Bruce Willis thinks that this is funny. No. Um, but I don't also, think that he thinks that a lot of things are funny anymore, and therefore that's why he's he's in that entire category. I think he's lost a lot of a well, lot and, of his and word around the campfires that oof. he's he's a difficult person to work with. That he is not particularly polite. Yeah, so he, mm-hmm. I I do not. I repeat, do not think that he is going to show up to get laughed at at the Razzies and accept this award. That he so rightly deserves, because at the end of the day, I think he has no sense of humor. Yeah. Or if he had one, he lost it. Yeah, but it was around, like, the 90s, so, like, it's uh, unfortunate for him. Um, that's pretty much all that we have as far as what we've been watching. The only thing that we've seen lately beyond um, the first two the first two episodes of Reacher, the, the first episode, the first one episode of Reacher. Yeah, we only watched the, the, the one because they were like almost an hour long. Mm-hmm. Um, which is good. I like it so far. Uh, no, yeah. The only other thing that we've seen beyond that is um, Scream, mm-hmm. the new one, the, the 2022 film, Five Cream, if you're in the know. <laughs> Um, if you don't know, now you know, Mr. President. Um, which I thought was good. I've got my letterboxed review of it posted. So if you're if you're curious, I can post my letterboxed link and you can go and, and give that that a, a look. Uh-huh. Do um, some reading. Yeah, it's 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 not a bad write-up. I, I I'm pretty happy with it. Um but it was all right. It's not my favorite of the Scream films, but I think I still like it more than like Scream 3. I think I probably like it about as much as 2 or 4. Um and see, that's hilarious because like I I definitely put them in order of the the way that they came out. And so like for me, I I think that I probably put it somewhere in the middle of 3 and 4. Okay. Um, but, but overall, I, I think that that first scream was, was lightning in a bottle and it is hard to recreate that magic again. Um, 
let alone do it four more times. Well, and also the formula itself, um, you know, the joke of Scream is to to talk about movies and and the process of making movies and watching movies and content. Um, and, and this one is, is all about the fact that it is a reboot. Yeah. And, and yeah, I just, you know, I... I don't know if 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 the jokes were were funny. And I also I will be honest, I'm not sure how well another one is going to do. And they've already announced that they're doing a Scream 6 now. Oh. And so I'm really not sure how well this is going to continue. Well, again. I was hoping that this was the end of it, but now if they're making more of them, I I think that I think that this might be um uh, a dead man walking. Yeah. I I am I liked this a lot. I wanted to like it more, but there being sequels on the horizon or at least a sequel on the horizon does make me a little bit trepidatious. Well, cuz I don't think that it, at the end of the day I don't think that the ideas are as fresh as other reboots have been. Yeah. Of 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 other, you know, horror icons. No, for sure. Um, I think that that's pretty fair. Um, oh my gosh, I forgot all about his mother in that movie. That woman was perfect. You know, Gentleman's Agreement had a had some had some issues for me, but at the end of the day, you were right. the The acting really saves that thing. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's just about all that we have. For for y'all this week um dear is there anything else that you would like to to say to the listeners before we oh we watched the jurassic world dominion trailer it looks fine it looks colorful um i i don't want to go on too long about it because i don't want to to bore y'all but i have a lot of issues with how we got to this particular movie. Maybe we'll do like a review of World Fallen Kingdom and and that sort of thing. Actually, you know, I'm not yeah, sure that we, we ever haven't did like already. Th- we'll we'll look into it. Um maybe we could do like one through Fallen Kingdom as like a big bonus episode or something. Oh, oh, that would that would be fun. I at the end of the day, I always have a soft spot in my heart for 3. Oh yeah, um, and like I'll everyone's take, favorite TV movie. I'll take three over Fallen Kingdom literally any day, all day, twice on Sundays. Like, yeah, um, I, I'd say that's fair. I think. And Colin Trevorrow was like, "Oh, I needed, I needed both World and Fallen Kingdom to get to Dominion." And I'm like, I can already tell you exactly how I'd have made some. If that was truly what you're saying, if you truly believe that you needed. You didn't need the middle A to one. get to B to get to C. I can tell you the exact narrative changes that you needed to make to World to make this your second movie because Fallen Kingdom is a shitty filler movie. You're telling me that the movie that had a had a doctor, a dinosaur doctor that had never seen doc, dinosaurs before is a bad movie? Yes. Oh, wow. Well, t- don't tell the people who made it because... They they literally corrected all of that for this one. They they said what character and just threw him out the window. 
Um, but so, they needed the diversity button pushed a few times, so I, I understand. They were like, gosh, too many white people. We need some color in this. Yeah. Um, but that's pretty much all that I have um, for y'all. Um, dear, do you have anything else that you would like to say to the listeners? Um, thanks for getting this far, guys. I don't think it's been that bad. <laughs> I, I didn't say it was bad. Um... No, yeah, thank you guys, as always, for listening. Um, I mentioned it before. Um, if you haven't already, go on to... If you would like to, to help the show grow and develop and and continue on, um, it would mean a lot to us if you went and gave the show a review on Apple Podcasts specifically. Uh, we're trying to get Rotten Tomatoes certified in March, and so it would mean a lot if you went and, and gave us a review. Um, we're working on maybe doing some collaborations. Uh, we were supposed to have a guest this week, Joseph, uh, but he is busy working on some, some journalistic projects related to, um, UNCSA and, and some of the scandal that they're in right now. So he wasn't able to join us. Next week, we're being joined by Zach Laws, uh, who is a walking thesaurus on, on Academy Awards and Best Picture winners. Which is good, um, because I am not. And so that should make for a really fun conversation. Um, and, uh, yeah, keep listening, keep checking in, you know, suggest suggest the show to people, uh, because we always love to have listeners come and, and check in. And actually, this is my truly last thought. I got an email from a listener, and they were kind enough to share this link where Kate Blanchett was talking about some of her favorite movies, and one of her favorite movies of all time is Rare Exports. Yeah! <laughs> uh, go back, listen to that episode, then find that movie, watch it. It doesn't have to be Christmas, even though it's about Christmas. That movie is perfect, and mm -hmm. Kate Blanchett loves it. So if you love movies and you love Kate Blanchett, take it. Take that opinion and run with it. Exactly. Watch that movie. Um, but that's pretty much all that we have for you guys. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great week, and we'll see y'all next week. Bye. Bye.